Thank you, Hank. It is a great privilege to be able to introduce Ian. I had heard of Ian for a couple of years before I had the privilege of meeting him, and he is someone with a very interesting story and whose journey with the Lord has been uh, a profound one, but one with a lot of unexpected twists and turns. Uh, you may know uh, from reading the biographical information that went out that Ian has a doctorate in systematic theology from Duquesne University, and you would think that would mean he would be an old and boring theologian, uh, but let me assure you that that is not the case. Um, Ian has a very uh, remarkable faith journey, and uh, as Hank said, he thought that we should talk about Murphy's Law because the old definition of Murphy's Law is of the anything that can go wrong will go wrong, but Ian had his own Murphy's Law uh, that was developed by Arlen Specter uh, in response to uh, Ian's bold proclamation of his faith. For us at St. Philip's, Ian is best known as the better half of the incredible Rachel Murphy, who is our clergy administrator here, who, without whom this whole place would collapse. So uh, we are very, very blessed to have Ian with us today. Ian is a speaker, a teacher, a professor, a theologian, uh, someone with an incredible sense of humor, but more than anything else, someone who has a great heart for the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is my privilege to welcome him here today. All right, I got the new mic on, check, looks like we're good. We've already been covered in prayer, so I'll dive right in. Thank you all so much for having me today. I appreciate this more than I can express. It's so great to be here with my brothers in Christ. And I get to talk to you about my favorite thing in the world to talk about, which is how I became a Christian, how Jesus met me and saved me. I used to be agnostic. I thought there probably was no God. Now, I did grow up in a Christian home. Both my parents loved the Lord with all their hearts, but I did not grow up in church. So how's that work? Christian parents, no church. My parents were hippies. 1960s, Woodstock, Beatles, tie-dye t-shirts, down with the establishment, man. We don't need that institutionalized religion. Me and Jesus will have church in the woods. So yeah, no church. And there were aspects of that for which I was grateful. You know, I was exposed to the worst sorts of TV evangelists. I mean, if I had been exposed, honestly, to the quality preaching I've heard here at St. Philip's, I'd probably be Anglican today. But no, I, I got to see the worst face of what calls itself Christianity. And it just looks so inauthentic. I and mean, how could that possibly be real? Imagine the televangelist at the breakfast table, if that is consistently his personality. Would you please pass the Cheeriosa? And after I finish this orange juice, I shall head upstairs to the bathroom where I shall cast these filthy pearly whites unto the frothy waters of the crest toothpaste where they shall be cleansed. Hallelujah. <laughs> Nobody talks.
talks like that? Who talks like that? It just struck me so fake. So I was grateful that I wasn't part of that nonsense. At the same time, not growing up in church, there was a lot I didn't know. I was four years old before I found out what a Bible was. I used to think the Bible was the Quaker Oat Man. Not that he wrote it. No, I thought that the Quaker guy featured on the canister of oatmeal mysteriously at one with the oats therein was himself the Bible. I have no idea what successful marketing and advertising strategy planted that wholesome connection into this little boy brain, but there it was. And I'm at the grocery store one day. I said, Mom, can we get some Bibles? I said, oh, that's an interesting interest. We have some at home. I said, no, I ate them all up. That's deep, man. <laughs> Digesting the word. But seriously, we have Bibles at home. We don't, they don't have them at the grocery store anyway. I said, yeah, sure they do. The whole cereal aisle has a whole section. Look, the Bible. She said, son, that's not the Bible. That's oatmeal. Did he write, what is it? It's a book. Well, did he write it? No, there's no connection at all. I was devastated. You know, at, up, up to that point in my life, I thought one thing in this world really got it right. Not only is the Bible this roadmap through life, according to my parents, but it was part of this complete breakfast. Wouldn't it be easier if we could just eat the books, you know? But then she told me it was a book, and something happened to me that could only be explained as grace. I, I was moved to read that book. I knew I had to, and I started right away. Now, at that young, it started, of course, with matching pictures in Maxwell's 10-volume children's Bible set to words I knew. But I started reading for real and got through it quickly. And by the time I was in the second grade, I didn't believe it. I wanted to, but I was also reading Charles Darwin's Origin of Species. I was a nerdy little kid. And it was no comfort to me that Charles Darwin believed in God because if his theory could possibly explain my existence as an accident, well, that terrified me. I knew this much. I knew everything hinged on the God question. I mean, if God is real, then he created me. He knows the purpose for my life, and, and there is life after death. But if there is no creator, and I'm just an accident, then it's lights out when I die, and I will have no conscious memory of ever having even existed at all. It absolutely terrified me. I knew everything hinged on whether or not God was real. Thus ensued my agnostic crisis, which followed me for the next six years into the eighth grade at 14 years old. I think eighth grade is a rough year for a lot of us. It was a very rough one for me, filled with anxiety about the God question. I felt like my life couldn't go on until I decided what I believed. And one day I cried out in this desperate prayer, God, if you exist, I need to be allowed to touch the spiritual realm for myself if I'm going to have faith. And if you don't exist, well, I'm just talking to the air right now. You know how they say, be careful what you pray for? You might just get it. I was allowed to encounter, touch, literally, the spiritual realm for myself. One night, I was awoken from a sleep by something that entered the room with me. I couldn't see it, but I knew it was there, and it could speak to me. It wasn't out loud. It was clearer than that. Mental communication, crystal clear, no room for misinterpretation. It said, I am real. 
I am here and I intend you harm. And I, I said, how come I can't see you? I didn't realize you, you do not engage these things in conversations. Let's take a lesson from Eve, right? Don't talk to snakes. That's just good advice in general. But it, it answered me. I am able to travel invisible to your human eye, but make no mistake about it, I am real, I am here, and I want to kill you. Even though I couldn't see it, it was like it was cloaked, and my eyes could follow the hazy trace of its presence, and the presence came above me, descended down on me, and physically started to crush me to death. It forcibly locked my legs together. It forcibly locked my arms against my side. I could see the compression down on my chest, and I felt its malevolence. I could feel its hatred for all humankind. It was as though a boa constrictor had wrapped itself around me and was slowly squeezing the air out of my lungs and suffocating me to death. I mean, the emotions are obvious, stark terror for one, but also utter fascination. I, I had my proof. And I had read about angels and fallen angels, but it was one of those moments of, you mean this is real? And I knew, and I might not live to tell about it, I had reached the point of I was suffocating, and so I knew who to call upon. I said in my mind, I said, to the thing crushing me, I command you, go away in the name of Jesus. And at that, main, at, at that name, this thing was gone. And the last thing I picked up from it was stark terror at the name I had just called upon. Sweet dreams tonight, everybody, by the way. <laughs> now, seriously, do not be afraid of demons, but be fearfully reverent of the one who they answer to. I race down the hall, I wake my parents up, and look, this craziness happened to me, this is real. My mom says, I always knew something like this was gonna happen to you. <laughs> I said, okay, really? Okay, mom, let me get this right. So you knew that one day a dark, invisible, demonic assassin was gonna come to your son in the night and try to kill him. That information goes on a list I call stuff to tell Ian about. <laughs> so like you would have believed me, my little doubting Thomas reading the origin of species in the second grade. No, you needed to see this for yourself. Are you ready to ask Jesus into your heart? I said, oh yeah, I know he's real. He literally saved me. And when I asked the Lord into my heart, I don't even know how to explain it. There is nothing like the resolution of that existential crisis of what's my meaningfulness. To have that God-shaped hole touched and filled, to know I was created with a purpose, and to know that my sins were forgiven. There's just nothing like it, to be born again. And my heart broke for other skeptics and agnostics and atheists, other doubting Thomases like I was, who just wanted some proof. And so I started this unofficial ministry to the skeptics in my high school and my social circles and my classes, which sort of reached a climax my senior year in high school when I was named valedictorian and they asked me to give the commencement address. They said, so what are you gonna say at, at graduation? You get to say farewell to your classmates. I said, well, I wanna tell them about Jesus. They said, well, this is a secular school. You, you can't do that. I said, yes, I can. You see, I live in a place called America. 
we have this thing called the Bill of Rights, and it officially protects my freedom of religion in this country and my freedom of speech. And the audience that day is free to disagree with me. And those liberties make this country the best place to live. The speech advisor replied, thanks for the history lesson. Ian, if you say the name of Jesus at graduation, I will pull the plug on the sound system myself. I will silence that name. Do I make myself clear? Well, it's clear, it isn't right, but it's clear. I go home, I'm sitting on my bed, the same bed where God allowed that experience that led me to salvation, where he saved me. I'm looking at my, I'm a pretty patriotic kid. I'm looking at my American Legion patriotism medal on my dresser, thinking about my two grandfathers who both risked their lives in World War II for the liberties I hold dear. So this just isn't right, and I didn't, so I didn't, I, I'm not ashamed of the name of Jesus. I'm not going to be censored, but I don't want to make a big hullabaloo about myself. I mean, that's not a Christian message either. So in prayer, I came up with this. I'm going to call the local paper and see if they'll print my graduation speech. Then at commencements, I'll, I'll simply take the podium and say, if you want to hear what I have to say, it's printed in the local Mount Pleasant Journal. Thank you very much. I thought that covered every aspect of what I was concerned about. So I called the local paper. They said, they're not allowed to do this. I, I know, I tried to explain it to them. So well, when we, when we get something this big, we gotta send it up the food chain. Hold, I'm on hold a couple seconds. Boisterous guy gets on the, on the line, says, all right, kid, what's your story? I said, well, my high school won't let me talk about Jesus at commencement. They what? They can't do that, this is a free country. I said, I know, I tried. He tries to muffle the phone and I hear him yell, We've got a hot one. Kid, where do you live? I said, well, in the middle of the dairy farmlands of Acme, Pennsylvania. We'll be there. So they find me. They interview me. They record it. They take my picture. I'm already feeling in over my head, right? I get to school the next day, worried about a calculus test. And my friend comes up to me. Man, I heard you on the radio this morning. Another person, I heard you on the radio. I wasn't on the radio. I was on the oldie station, apparently, the country music station. Kids said, you were on the classic rock station, man. Then they played some Zeppelin. <laughs> so I think I would remember opening up for Led Zeppelin. What is going on? <laughs> Turns out they had recorded the interview and released it to the AP wire, the Associated Press. So all the local radio stations picked up the story off the AP network and were airing it all morning long. Then my friend shows me that day's paper, May 23rd, 1993. And I'm on the front page, color picture, under the headliner, commencement speech about religion rejected, free speech denied. And I became the free speech kid. The next two months exploded into a media blitz that eventually went national. I was getting copies of newspapers from as far as Maine, Texas, Florida, Nevada, California, Washington State. I mean, in all corners of the country, we're picking up the story off the Associated Press. Uh, the, the paparazzi shows up. It is just like it is in the movies. Throngs of TV cameras, flashing ca camera bulbs and then microphones in your face. They were at my house breaking my lawn furniture. They were at the school. They were in town. I mean, nowhere was safe. I was put on the news, I was on TV every day. One of the local stations replaced their opening doo -doo 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 news with the pomp and circumstance song, the graduation theme. That was the opening of their news show and a close-up of my senior class picture zooming in. Is how the news opened. And I had had a bad hair day. 
was one of the worst pictures of me. I had this giant boof of hair. I looked like Gumby. If you don't know who Gumby is, great. <laughs> you know, I was, I was getting Santa Claus-sized sacks of fan mail sent to the high school, called down to pick it up every week. And some of the letters contained cash. So I was sure to open every piece of fan mail. And girls liked me. Not ordinary ones either, but high-quality babes. I'd always get fan mail, cash, attention, fame, women. Serving Jesus is tight. You know, he, running that much attention through my 18-year-old male ego was like running 500 volts through a 50-volt wire. Those were heady days, and I confess they felt good, and not for all the right reasons. But our Lord has this way of humbling us and showing us what love means, showing us his cross, and he would certainly do that. You know, the, it got so bad, I, I learned the hard way that not even the men's room in the high school was a safe place for me to hide out from the reporters. So, I mean, my family eventually just took off to get away from the circus, but Channel 4 dispatched a helicopter to chase us from Pennsylvania to Michigan for the next story. You know, under all the pressure uh, and the pro bono promises to take my case to the Supreme Court from local lawyers and people picketing the high school to try to get the principal fired, and the school eventually backed down under all the pressure and allowed me to give my speech and now because they tried to silence the name of Jesus Christ, millions of people got to hear the gospel televised. And one of my classmates accepted Jesus into her heart as after the speech and let me know about it. You know what I think the whole thing was all just for her? It, had all, it died down and a couple months later the, the media was back in my front lawn and uh, I said, what's going on? I thought this was all over. They said, well, we're here as envoys on behalf of Senator Arlen Specter. Uh, he said he wanted to be here in person, but just couldn't. He tried. So he requested specifically a live reaction. So we're not going to rehearse like we normally do. We're just supposed to go live in five, four, look at us, don't look at the camera, three, two, one. Ian Murphy, inspired by your courageous stance for freedom of speech, Senator Arlen Specter, who followed your story, drafted a bill to the U.S. Congress to officially protect valedictorians from these attempts at censorship ever happening again. It's already passed through both houses of Congress and was just ratified by the president. How does it feel to know that you just changed the laws of our country? <laughs> and then here was me. Good. <laughs> and there you have it, folks. The free speech kids said that it feels good. Back to you at the studio. I begged for a retake. I said, please. She said, no, it's precious. He is going to love that. He's absolutely going to love it. So I suppose you could call it Murphy's Law. You know, I wish I could say I ran with all that momentum, but instead I backslid. Had some nasty backslidden years. Uh, you ever look back at a time in your life and you say, oh, I just ate a big bowl of stupid flakes. Today's testimonial has been brought to you by Stupid Flakes. Stupid Flakes, don't eat those. Instead, enjoy Quaker oatmeal. It might not be the Bible, but it's good. Back to our conversion story. But you know what? That's when I realized in those backslidden years, 
that I had fallen in love, that I loved God, and that I knew what love meant. I learned about his cross, and I wanted him back at any cost. I missed him. He was my best friend, and I, I wanted him back. Uh, and I was afraid, you know, with, I really blew it, backsliding after all that great stuff. It, you know, is he going to be so mad at me? When I, went, when I finally took a knee and went back to him, he wasn't waiting with the club. He was waiting with a hug. And it was, I felt like I got embraced by the father of the prodigal son saying, I got you back. Oh, don't you do that to me. I got you back. And I felt a father's love. And I want you to feel that today. Because that's what it's all about. You know, one of the reasons my story has such interest is it, it is indeed interesting to see God's activity manifest in the political arena. And I get the impression I'm in the room with a lot of men who, like myself, are fascinated by that intersection between spirituality and the civic arena, the arena of, of, of politics. But something God has shown me is that he's even more interested in the invisible. One of the reasons we're so intrigued by stories like that is because we can see it we don't live by what we can see. We live by trust. Most of reality is invisible. And God wants to break into the interior life. You know, the people at, at his time, you know, why doesn't he take Jerusalem? We still, why doesn't he capture D.C.? That's not the throne he's after. He wants this. He's after your heart. He is after you. He is pursuing you. Whatever you do for a living, whatever your family situation, he will set everything to a higher plane, a higher tier of meaningfulness if you just let him in deeper, into the interior, into your heart territory. That is the territory where his kingdom reign advances. So please let him in, because he is real. He is pursuing you. And he really does have it all covered. We have this bad habit of telling God how big the storm is, when we can all start telling the storm how big our God is. Thank you all so much. God bless you. Thanks for having me.